So we are in Romans. I don't know if you were here last when we were. Where were we when you were here last? Acts? This is the very first day of Romans. First day of Romans, okay? So I don't need to review too much. Uh, but I think it's always good to, to review briefly. Uh, just because even in a week we can forget things. Um, so we're still in Romans 2. So the the key to me to Romans is to understand, uh, at least one of the keys, is to understand the concept of trust and faith. Uh, because that's that's one of his goals, is to establish, reestablish uh, human relationships with God. And that the relationships with others rise or fall according to how much we trust the other person. And so... I gave, uh, at the beginning of Romans, I gave an overview of the covenant of faith, the Abrahamic covenant, and how Abraham lost his faith, and consequently, uh, circumcision began to play a role. I'm very much shortening this. So, what has happened to relationships has been that we have lost our trust to a certain extent enough that we tend to, instead of regaining one another's trust and supplying evidence of our trustworthiness, we tend to try to appease people, please people, and we have all kinds of artificial constructions for how we do that, uh, when the truth is we need to reestablish trust. So that's where we're headed in Romans, and one of the impediments to trust is a misunderstanding of God's wrath. And so in Romans 1, uh, starting with verse 18, Paul deals a long t- for quite a few verses on God's wrath, the nature of God's wrath, and how it is against sin explicitly, but it is God giving people up to their, sin- to their sins. It is not him actively punishing people uh, with direct action. So then we hit chapter 2. And chapter 2 uh, is a continuation of chapter 1. There really should be no break. Actually, there should be no chapter divisions in all of Romans. And there wasn't originally. It read as one piece. In Romans 2, uh, Paul says, okay, here's the list of all the sins, and this is what God yeah, forces God to give you up. But you're guilty. All of you are in this, this list of sins somewhere. And because you're guilty, you have no right to judge another person who's in that list. And he spends quite a bit of time talking about judgment. I want to just uh, review one little verse since you weren't here for chapter 2. Look at uh, chapter 2, verses, verse 2. We'll read verses uh, 2 to 9. You say, we know that God's judgment is on those who do such things in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? People who judge other people tend to despise God's mercy. They don't really want him to be merciful to those bad people that they've judged. So, or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
That's very hard news for a judge. A person who judges other people thinks they are above them, that they are better than they. And so this is like, what? We have to repent? <clears throat> Verse 5, But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath. Now I would like to change one word. You are storing up wrath in yourselves for the day of wrath. It's permissible in the Greek and I think it makes so much more sense. The wrath isn't coming from God here. It's coming from our judgmentalism. Getting angry with people who aren't as good as we are. And Paul's saying, no, no. You're simply storing up wrath in yourself for the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for he will repay according to each one's deeds. That according to each one's deeds indicates that it is what we do, our storing up wrath in the day of wrath. It's our, our uh, the, the evil deeds we do against other people. That in the day of wrath, when God lets us go, all that <clears throat> proves to be self-destructive. And uh, verse 9, uh, okay, well, for those, uh, verse 8, he will pay according to one deeds to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Well, for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. He doesn't say God's wrath. He's talking about the wrath that we store up in ourselves. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. So, so much of religions that talk about God, they focus on His wrath. And from the Bible's viewpoint, is it because of the way it's translated? Sometimes it is. Sometimes they add the word God in there. Because we, we read into it, because well and, and the fact is he has just talked about God's wrath in Romans but he uses the verb apocalyptai it is revealed meaning we're not going to define God's wrath we're going to say this is what it is and he's three times he says therefore God gave them up so we have God's wrath is giving us up. up to our wrath you could say I just read an interesting statement this morning um I've been reading the little book that I may know him, which is a devotional compilation of Ellen White's writings. And um, in there she talks about when God handing Jesus over, which of course is his wrath. But then she talks about how uh, God's own people who claim to profess to worship him and believe in him worked out Satan's wrath against Jesus. And talks, she talks about the torture. Satan's wrath is torture. God's wrath is giving people up. And, and I think we have to make that distinction very, very clear. So Otherwise we start God painting God like Satan. Right, because so much of our concepts are really based on these false lies that Satan puts in front of us. It seems to be so easy. Like well, that's, that's where our distrust comes from. You can't be afraid of someone, which... You know, seeing God as, as punitive and, and revengeful and angry and wrathful, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bring us trust because fear, fear is the opposite of trust. You can't trust someone you're afraid of. This week's quarterly really is bringing out you know, the whole concept of, it's really paganism, talking about God 
needed the death. He needed a human sacrifice. It's in our quarterly this week. Like he needs a human sacrifice to be appeased. That's paganism. That's Baal worship. So the quarterly actually uses the word appeased? Well, not as strong. Yeah, yeah. You read that whole concept and it's like we're brain dead. How can we have this loving God who's waiting there to kill you? Be careful the rules. Yeah. And they would probably use a statement I read the other day in that same book uh, where she says that when Jesus' death removed an impediment that kept God from showing his love. And that impediment would not be God. It would not be his wrath. His impediment would be Satan. His, his blackening the reputation of God and making things confused so that God had to clarify the truth before he could love. The impediment is never, it's never God's problem that he can't love us. He loved us enough to come to die for us. Mm-hmm. And, and in Jesus, the, there was no disunity between him and the Father, right? So the impediment is not ever God, it's Satan and us. That's always the problem. Mm-hmm. And the death, because Jesus was able to prove to demonstrate the truth about the nature and consequences of sin and the nature of God, that impediment was removed. It's clear now. We can go ahead and save human beings. So that raises the question that Paul is now going to answer. And that is, what about all those before the cross? Can they be saved? So here's the answer. Verse 12. And, Tony, I'm wondering if you would read 12 to 16. Mm -hmm. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Uh, For the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or even ex- excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of man, men by Jesus Christ according to the gospel, to my gospel. So how are, how are the people saved who don't know the gospel? Or are they? How they live, how their heart is. If they show that the Holy Spirit has been working on their heart, then they're doing in their hearts what the gospel requires. They show they show they are on the trajectory that makes it possible for God to save them. They're, they're on that trajectory of trust and love, the two great principles. I've been studying the, the uh, nomadic tribes in the mid-1200s, and... They've got the Crusaders on one side who haven't gone into Israel. They have to back off. They stayed in those whole parts of the world fighting, trying to get back to Israel. And then they have the uh, Mongols coming in from the other side. The whole concept of doing right because it's right. You know, these are Muslims. Mm -hmm. Doing right what is right and what does God want as opposed to, you know, selfish endeavors and so forth. It was kind of interesting, the traditions they had in those real pulmonatic tribes and stuff. And mm-hmm. it wasn't just, uh, mm-hmm. oh, and their concepts of the whole stories of Abraham and stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Their concepts are so different than ours, but mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Well, it's a, um, I have two students here who can testify that it's an interesting read to read their Quran and find out it's not as uh, horribly... It's not as horribly revengeful and, and awful as we have imagined mm -hmm. based on certain actions of ISIS and other groups. It feels dogmatic, but it's not aggressive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a good distinction. It's mm, that's a good way, yeah. I don't distract too much, but that's kind of a nice concept because of the time frame they were, just like okay. the Old Testament Bible times. Where they were on their development, right? And their understanding. Yeah, I think that very possibly the Muslims were far closer to the kingdom than the Crusaders. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and and you'd be interested to know that a view of wouldn't have been stated as appeasement, maybe, but really amounted to that the view of appeasement of Jesus' death, appeasing the Father, mm -hmm. uh, was being worked out by Anselm of Canterbury, he, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, at the same time that Leo, Pope Leo II was working out the crusade mm -hmm. <laughs> against the Muslims, and they were in cahoots with each other, and, and so that whole system that spawned uh, penal substitutionary atonement comes from uh, the context of the mm -hmm. crusades. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's in a book... Uh, by John Carroll, who's a Roman Catholic writer, uh, called Constantine Sword. It's a big, thick book, and it's it's a, his uh, research that he's done on how the Roman Catholic Church has treated the Jews. It's a historical overview uh, of how the Roman Catholic Church has treated the Jews hmm. in the Jewish question. Well. So when the Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that the law, that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, according to the gospel through Jesus Christ, they will judge the secrets of all. Note how this judgment takes place. Their own thoughts will accuse or excuse them as though they are a participant on, on passing that sentence on themselves. And you wonder how the, the final, final judgment of the wicked, which happens, we understand, at the end of the millennium, how that's actually going to take place. Is God just going to stand up and say, sentence to death, sentence to death? <laughs> um, or is there going to be a, a discussion? And are the judged going to have a participation in their judgment? What is it, how is it that they finally kneel and say, just and true are your ways, O your king, O your king of saints? The more I study the judgment in the, in the Bible, and I look at Job, I look at Daniel, the more I see God as an open court. Mm -hmm. And anybody can come in and argue their case before mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. Even I think um, the Grand Contrast in the last chapter mentions how um, the people that are going to to fight the city, the ones that mm -hmm. resurrected the second death and they're in the sight of Satan, how they saw the whole picture of their life play a, a part. And they, and they got to the point where they were like, man, you're a, 
just God, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. we accept. They this, don't yeah. get to the point of saying you're loving. Yeah. They they have they do not they reject the love of God. So, but He's just. He's mm -hmm. fair. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the way He is. This is the way we are. Mm -hmm. So you, let's put some other pieces together with that. Matthew twenty five is a chapter where Jesus talks about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. What is the criteria for that judgment? You kept the seventh-day Sabbath. You paid a perfect tithe. You did not smoke, drink, or use drugs. You uh, believed all the right 28, now 29, <laughs> now 30. No. <laughs> Eventually that will be the case. Uh, fundamental, uh, fundamental beliefs. None of that is there. It's as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Anybody can do that, right? Anybody can be touched by the love of God. And, and according to Paul, they have this in their hearts, this love principle, and they get it from nature. They watch the animals relate to one another. They see a mother with a child. And that nurturing, that almost instinctive nurturing love is there. And they see it. And I personally believe that God mediates his love through all those mechanisms. Or they would, they would fall apart and, and let us down. So if, if we realize that, then the kingdom of God is broader, the door is bigger. And, and back to what um, Tony was saying about the last judgment. Before, before this, they advance against the city, the doors are open. Well, that's what Sister White says. When the city comes down, the gates are open. Nobody comes in. They, they can. can. It's totally open. It's totally open. It means that they could, if they wanted to, come inside and, and talk to people. And, and examine the streets of gold and, and see how everything fits together and how everybody treats one another. They could all do that. And it's only when they advance against the city to attack it, the gates will go shut. That's, that's the point where God says, no, I can't accept violence. So I, if, if we look at God as having an open court and accepting anyone who adopts the principle of love, it has it in their hearts. Wow, that's a pretty open heaven. That means people who hate love are to really be pitied because they're they're cutting themselves off from, and and it's they themselves that are doing that. I mean, there's no point in which God cuts them off; they cut themselves off. Um, and I think one of the reasons the gates are closed is to protect them. They're going into that sit toward that city to come into it with violence, and that will make them very combustible in the glory of God. There won't be any protection. God wants them to see why they're outside the city, and he wants to show that panorama, and he can't do that if they come in. Mm -hmm. So he shuts the gates, and then they have a movie, <laughs> a very long movie. All right, any questions or, or co other comments that you have about this, these verses, 12 to 16? Well, I, I think it's really very important 
those that they call the Gentiles and the rest of the world, that they still have access. I remember in anthropology, my first anthropology class at Walla Walla, um, they showed a, a really old film, a British film, and this British um, anthropologist was on the train, and they, of course, for the movie, you know, they show him waving goodbye, and he's going into darkest Africa. And the whole concepts and words, and I don't remember all the words, but like, these are people that are, have no knowledge, they're dark, they live in sin, they live in corruption, and heathens. <laughs> so it's like, and he's going to come in this light in there. And, you know, of course, now we would laugh about all that, but that's mm -hmm. the way the, so much the world thinks. That people in those places can't possibly be saved unless we send them a missionary. Are we perhaps judging them? Mm -hmm. They may have more light than we know. It's interesting how they're talking about like under the law or not under the law, and those of us who are under the law would like to feel superior because it is arguably harder to live as a Christian with the law, but then in the other category, if they don't have the law, like with the anthropologist, they could be doing better by their standards than we are now, even though it's harder mm -hmm. to see it that way. Because we use the rules to make us worse instead of better. We try so hard to keep them that we we become petty judges mm -hmm. and, and start pointing the finger at everybody else to bolster our own superiority. And what, that's why Paul is saying, chuck it. <laughs> this is not the life you're supposed to live. This is the life you're supposed to live is a life of trust in God. And, and that breeds obedience to the law. Because it's built, the law is law of love. And, and without the love, you're not keeping the law. I, I remember back in my legalistic days when I was a child, basically. I grew up in a very legalistic community. My parents were very conservative Adventists. And I was continually worrying all Sabbath day that I would break the Sabbath. Sabbath became a burden. I was bored and struggling to keep it holy. And I was the first-class judge of everybody. By the time I was 14, I had fallen into the habit of criticizing everybody that practically walked near me. And, and I remember sitting at camp meeting with my best friend, and I criticized every, all the leaders up front um, for something. They were, they were college-age students, and I was still in the academy. Um, but I, well, actually, I was just starting academy. I was 14. And I just... Condemned and condemned and condemned. And then I found out that there was another commandment besides the ten that I was supposed to keep, and I wasn't keeping it, and that was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I remember go floundering. How do I keep that? How do I love? I don't love God. He's up there, I'm down here. He, I do what's right. He gets me into heaven. That's the end of our relationship. Beginning and the end of our relationship. And uh, I really floundered with that. And that became the turning point that the Holy Spirit used to bring me to a conversion experience. 
And and from then on, my whole life and and relationship with God centered around love and trust, uh, not the rules. And uh, then, unfortunately, I I shouldn't have done this, but I turned my criticism toward those who were so legalistic on the <laughs> academy staff. Uh, I felt like they were giving, uh, putting rules in the place of God to the students. I had a while to go to stop being so critical. All right, let's uh, start with. Uh, Verse 17 and go to verse 24. And Amy, mm-hmm. do you, would you read those verses for me, please? 17 and 24? Mm-hmm. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confi- confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, Having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written. Well, that just described me. (laughs) The way I was. You notice, we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. Let's let's paraphrase this. But if you call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God, I'm in his favor. That would be what boasting relationship with God. And know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law. I know what's right for you and everybody else. And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, will you not teach yourself? Why don't you start worrying about your own backyard? Can you think of any parallels in Christ's life to a concern for getting people to worry about their own backyards? Sermon on the Mount. Stick in your own eye in the log. Yeah. Don't judge because what you judge on another person, you'll be judged. Mm -hmm. Okay, good point. We always know who the sinners are because the, they do the things that we do that we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're more likely to see the sins that we're inclined to follow as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do that yesterday, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of anything else that, in Jesus' life? He's constantly pointing out that the Pharisees are going against this guidance. He nails the teachers of the law, the people who fit this paragraph very well. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that you could go to Matthew 23, the woes on the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Well, it's more subtle, I think, but uh, Judas with Christ. You could think of how Jesus couldn't Exposed him to the disciples, couldn't he? 
and he virtually does at the Last Supper. You know, he, the, the one who who uh, dips his bread in the in the uh, sauce with me, the same is the one that's going to betray me. And Judas does that, and they the disciples don't get it. So Jesus hasn't really exposed him. And and actually, in some ways, he sought to cover him. He didn't he didn't unveil what he was about to do. So the disciples weren't aware of it until that scene in the temple when Judas throws the money down. Judas exposes himself. I think another instance, I think, a little bit parallel is when the widow um, puts her ties and offering a little small and then the other were just leaving whatever they had. It was a lot of money, but it was, a little, it was just like the extra they had. Um, so I kind of it's a little bit here because they're like looking at the other one kind of like making fun of her or whatever but in the end they were just they were not really do, putting their ties over it's just like the extra money and they were just doing it for showing others um, so I think it kind of fits as well a little bit in this text so Jesus could have called a halt to it all and said this guy's a hypocrite he threw in only uh, 1% of his income into the mm-hmm. into the treasury and here's so-and-so who gave less than that, and, mm-hmm. and he could have gone down the line, couldn't he? Instead, he commends the, commends the one person who really gave all she had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think of Peter, uh, when Jesus met them, when they had fished all night and they couldn't catch it, have caught anything. And This is after this death and resurrection, and uh, he treats them to a breakfast of fish. When he finishes, he calls Peter aside, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, he's calling him out in a confession. He could have exposed to the disciples how horrific it was that Peter denied him, and on and on and on, but he doesn't do that. He simply asks, do you love me? And when that's all said and done, Peter says to Jesus, uh, Jesus says, tells him the future. He says, you're going to go where you did not want to go, and you're going to, to be uh, treated the way you didn't want to be treated. And he tells him how he's going to die. And Peter sees John, and he says, Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Clean up your own backyard. I think Jesus' whole life is an exemplification that God does not expose his enemies. And, and that, to me, is one of the biggest reasons why the Bible does not have more about Satan. God did not go around exposing his enemy. Well, then it becomes a, you know, that word, a pissing contest. And God is in that kind of I'm right and he's wrong. Both sides are saying the same thing mm-hmm. about each other. And that, that had already happened. Mm-hmm. And they made their decisions, I guess, in heaven, right? Yeah. I think it's, I don't know, at least for me, it's really hard to understand love because in so many ways we need to feel like we need to protect ourselves and get revenge or be compensated or... 
But it's like Martin Luther King Jr. says, since we just celebrated his birthday. Can you re help me remember this? This was, in, uh, this was given to us by the president in Colloquy Thursday. Uh, the statement that hate cannot drive out hate. Mm -hmm. Only love can drive it out. And to the extent that we want revenge on our enemies, we have become like them, and mm -hmm. they have us in their grasp. Mm -hmm. I, there's a great story uh, on this uh, that I sometimes show my ethics students in Introduction to Christian Ethics. It's called Ruby Bridges. Ruby was one of six black students who were integrated into white public schools in the South when integration end, ended. When, when, I'm sorry, when integration began and segregation ended. She ended up in this big, white, public school with the only black student, and she was six years old. Hmm. And she ended up having her own teacher for the first year because none of the other teachers would integrate her into their classrooms. And that teacher had to fight for her, had to fight for her to get P.E., had to fight for her to be able to play with the other children, and had to fight to get her integrated into a classroom to some extent at least. And she was fired at the end of the year by the principal, who was just hated integration. Every morning, the hecklers would line up outside the school as Ruby was being brought in, and she had to be escorted by four Federal marshals. marshals. I remember the picture. Remember the, the picture of that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she, they, they told Ruby, "Don't look back. Don't look at the crowd. Just keep walking forward and look straight ahead." And she obeyed. She was a very compliant little girl. And so she marched up into the classroom while they threw tomatoes at her. They rotten tomatoes, of course. Um, they, they threatened to kill her. They threatened to poison her. Uh, it caused her nightmares. It caused her all kinds of PTSD syndromes uh, or symptoms. But every morning when she got out of her car, well, I'll tell, tell the story the way the movie does. One morning as she's plowing forward up the steps, all of a sudden she turns around and she walks back down the steps toward the crowd. And the marshals are like, stop, Ruby, stop. And, and Ruby stopped and she said something to the crowd, it's, it looked like. And then she turned around and she walked back into the school. She had a psychiatrist named Robert Coles who was working with her. And Robert Coles is a very famous psychiatrist turned ethicist who dealt with morality and moral development in children. So the next session he had with her, he said, Ruby, what happened the other day? Were you, did you decide to get angry at that crowd and tell them a thing or two? What were you saying? Ruby says, I wasn't saying anything to them. But Ruby, I was there. I saw your lips move. Ruby said, I wasn't talking to them. I was t praying for them. He said, praying for them? What did you say? And she 
folded her hands and closed her eyes and prayed the prayer she prayed, which was, please forgive these people who do mean things to me because they don't know any better as you forgave the people who did mean things to you so long ago. Mm. It's the most powerful, powerful story. This is a little girl who didn't let them have her. So, I think we can finish chapter two today. Adrian, would you read 25 to the end, please? Certainly. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, mm-hmm. by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That must have sent the circumcision party up into orbit. <laughs> How dare you say that? This is uh, what I call externalism. When what, it, what we do on the outside becomes more important than who we are on the inside. And when our whole relationship with God becomes externalized, it becomes a matter of doing the right things and, and obeying God and keeping His commandments and, and then judging other people who don't. When it's really a matter of the heart, it's a matter of trust and love. And that, when I talk about trust and love, I'm not talking about something we generate. We can only trust to the extent that we believe God can be trusted. And we can only love to the extent that God loves us, that we allow Him to love us. And I'm going to leave the we out. We can only love to the extent that we are loved. So it's not of us. It's all of grace. It's all of God. That's why 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. It's not something we can create in mm-hmm. ourselves. We love in response to God. And I, I can't resist drawing a little on what I've come to conclude is, is the development of externalism. <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, it was all of grace. And I'm broadening the concept of grace beyond grace of being extended to people who don't deserve it. I'm now extending it to the to the concept that none of us deserve, ever deserved it, even in perfection. It's only in a legal model that we deserve anything. <laughs> Let's take away the legal model, which is our invention, and look at this through the eyes of infinite love. Love bestows things on people, not because they deserve it. Being deserving is, has nothing to do with it at all. I love you because you're my child, and I love you because I am love. And that's from God's perspective. And so the Garden of Eden is the Garden of Grace, where everything is a gift, and everything is free, and nothing is earned, and nothing is deserved. Sin is falling out of, the, out of grace. 
where we we have believe the lies that the serpent taught us and we come to the place where we see God as angry with us, as uh, not liking what we're doing, as uh, condemnatory, as punitive, as vengeful. And so we have to do something to get his favor back. That's the mechanism of sin and its, and its consequences. So Jesus comes to restore the Garden of Grace. He loves everybody. He loves the Pharisees too, but they hate his love. And that, as it, as it actually started, I think we tried to parody that, that what is a natural, descriptive uh, ecosystem of love. God loves us, and in natural response, we love him back. And he loves us, we love him back. And, and you have this constant ecosystem moving in a circle. We try to parody that by giving to people, but our selfish hearts got in the way. And we stopped giving to people just because we love them. We started giving to people because they were supposed to reciprocate back and they didn't. Shame on them. That's where shame began. In a sense, and I mean, it began in the garden with with uh, believing Satan's lies and eating the fruit, but it became really, how shall I put it, systemic. You might say, it became systemic when we started expecting someone to reciprocate our love, and so gift giving became obligatory. I don't know if you were raised this way. Somebody gave us a gift, oh, we better give them something back, and it better be of equal value to what they gave us. Otherwise, we are not honoring them and their worth. That became mechanized giving. It wasn't natural now anymore. It was obligatory. That led to trade. That led to economics, barter, uh, money, all those things. And we are stuck with that system, and we have to use it. But hopefully we can at least recognize that this is not the way God originally planned it, and that the way he wanted it was a natural response of love from being loved. So circumcision is just an external sign that I'm keeping the law, that I'm keeping the covenant. Why was it given? Because Abraham decided to fulfill the covenant on his own terms, and Ishmael was the result. That's why circumcision was given. You follow the storyline of Genesis 15 through uh, 22, and there you have it. Abraham allows uh, Sarah to talk him into going in with Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael. When Ishmael is 13, God shows up and says, all right, you're going to have to cut a little closer to home. Remember, cutting the covenant in external human terms meant uh, cutting animals in pieces and walking through their body parts, as, as Abraham does in, in chapter 15. <clears throat> God says you're going to have to cut a little closer, and circumcision is the result. So circumcision is the result of us wanting to do works to fulfill the covenant ourselves instead of trusting God to do it. And there you have it. The externalism. 
So Paul is determined to do a paradigm shift and say, no, this is not external. This is about internal love and trust of the heart. And once the heart is circumcised, it can have love and trust. What does it mean to circumcise the heart? Well, pride and selfishness and a loss of a sense of God's love hardens the heart. You know that concept in the Bible. How does it harden the heart? It grows this this outer foreskin <laughs> around the heart. It constricts it from beating love. You have to get that foreskin cut off so that it can receive the love of God and then beat love again. Because what enables the heart to beat love is the constant incoming of God's love. So in the Garden of Eden, God didn't change that. We changed. Exactly. We have so many concepts that really say that God changed. Yeah, and, and it's a cop-out. Because if we deny that we've changed and not God, we're putting blame on Him without realizing it. Our time is up. <clears throat> and chapter 3 is a pinnacle. It's not the pinnacle, but it is a pinnacle in Romans, so we'll be spending time. This is where, chapter 3 is where I've done the most research in the last several years. So let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you that your heart beats love even when we can't receive it. We ask that you will take away the stony heart, as the prophets put it, and give us a heart of flesh so that we can receive your love and thus beat love to others. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.